Thank you for listening to this special feature of ECDPM's Great Insights issue devoted to the green transition and climate adaptation in the run-up to COP26. We hope the conversation you're about to listen to gives you a better understanding of what still needs to happen for a truly green transition and effective climate adaptation. Make sure to also check out the other conversations and articles in our Great Insights magazine. Enjoy! Good morning. Thank you so much, Dr. Brunings, for being here with us, for making time for this interview. Uh, you are now director, executive director of the European Environment Agency. And when you were still a professor at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium, I took your course on international relations. And it's already more than 15 years ago, but I remember very well how passionately you spoke about the need to preserve the environment, about climate change. And it has actually inspired me to choose a career focusing on climate change and on adaptation. So I want to thank you for that. Well, it's great uh, to be with you and to see you again after 15 years indeed. And uh, yeah, I, I, I would say in my current job, the only thing I miss is the daily work with young people and students and trying to inspire them to pursue the things that they find worthwhile in life. So uh, that's yeah. uh, I'm, I'm looking forward actually after my mandate now to, to going back to working with, with young people. Okay, yeah, great, I can imagine. Okay, uh, so now um, the first question, it's about the agency that you are leading, the European Environment Agency. Can you explain what the objectives are? Yeah, the agency was set up about 27 years ago, and uh, we have three core elements that we focus on. One is that we gather uh, the monitored data on environmental issues uh, in Europe, uh, in climate change in Europe, with the member states. And we do make quality level, quality assured data sets on that to check whether countries are actually performing and they are sticking to uh, European objectives in European and climate policies, uh, because you, you need to know whether countries are in, indeed implementing uh, what they say they're implementing. The second thing uh, we do is, I call it connecting the dots. You could also call it integrated assessments. Uh, we, we bring things together to create understanding. For example, what is the impact of changing mobility patterns on air quality? And what is then the impact on human health? Or if we look at climate change, how does that relate to biodiversity issues? So that is the connecting the dots work. And that is increasingly important because we increasingly understand that uh, problems of environment and climate are related to the systems of production and consumption that surround us. The energy system, the food system, the mobility system, built environment. And to really grasp that, you need to connect these dots. And then the third thing we do, since we are an organization that, that brings knowledge to policymakers, we also have a strong foot uh, with science. And so we bring new understanding, new methodologies to the table as well. And we do that as a network organization, so with strong collaboration with the Brussels partners, but also with strong networks in the member states. Thank you. That was very clear. As a Europe Africa think tank, we at ECDPM, we're also a policy research center, we are especially interested in the role that the EU can play in assisting African countries in adaptation. 
Now, the new EU adaptation strategy released in February that also has an important external dimension. Now, I listened to your intervention during the recent European Climate Change Adaptation Conference, and you talked about the need to create a pipeline of investable projects on adaptation. Can you explain concretely how you can create this type of investment opportunities for adaptation in developing countries, specifically in African countries? Well, yes, I think fundamentally it's important that, that we understand what type of investments are needed for climate adaptation. And for mitigation, it's it's much clearer, one could say. Uh, we, we know that you need to invest in different energy systems, different mobility systems. So that, that is much clearer. It's, it's a bit more tricky to come with uh, clearly defined investments in adaptation. And when I think of the African context, well, first of all, Africa is a big continent with a very broad variety of uh, conditions uh, and, and adaptation has a sort of universal understanding, but it's always local as well. Huh? So it, it's very different whether you're in the Sahelian zone or whether you're in the tropical moist forest uh, around the equator. It's very different whether you are on the highlands of Ethiopia or in, in the highly uh, urbanized uh, parts of, of South Africa. So I think by and large, it's clear that if you want to adapt, you need to look at where the biggest impacts and potential damage will be from climate change. And I think in an African context, we need to uh, work on food systems. It's rather obvious that that will be absolutely critical. I think the infrastructure needs in Africa are often very big and ensuring that the investments in infrastructure are climate proof towards the future is important uh, because it would be a bit bizarre to build infrastructure in parts of Africa. And then in 20 years time, we come to the conclusion that we didn't really think of the climate change adaptive measures that were necessary. It's also clear that the African uh, continent will be rapidly urbanizing. And so uh, thinking of what type of uh, urban uh, networks, urban infrastructure, what type of buildings, what type of energy supply to cities is climate proof. Yeah, not only in the energy use part, but also in temperature, retention of water, cooling, in many cases, uh, using nature-based solutions uh, in, in cities. So that, that I think will be important as well. There is of course an, an, a link also with the health issue, but those are all topical elements. Huh? I think what is equally important for good and solid climate adaptation work is the governance around it. We know that when institutions are weak and when uh, the legitimacy of institutions is weak or the transparency around uh, the use of funds or, or how things are decided, that that is problematic. And I mean, without being naive, I think we, we can say that, that this is a real challenge in the African context. Now, in the framework of the European Green Deal, European countries, and especially companies, of course, they see business opportunities in investing in renewable energy in Africa, with the prospects of interesting public investment in European technology. Do you think that this will be beneficial for African countries, or may there be winners and losers? 
Well, as, as with a lot of investments in that context, I think it depends on how it is done, whether you have winners or losers and, and who they are. Huh? If you think of investments in mitigation, we're talking about investments in energy in Africa, of course, also in mobility systems, partially in agriculture, but I would say primarily in, uh, in the energy uh, system and infrastructure. And, and we know from experience uh, that it, it really depends who is involved, uh, who pays the price of what type of, uh, of investment. For example, you can think of more distributed energy systems huh, in an African context. If, if you work with uh, rather small scale photovoltaics and you, you provide the necessary energy storage and you, you have local ownership, not necessarily in the purely economic terms, but, but ownership over what, what is happening, you can do a lot in some of the areas that are most deprived of uh, solid energy systems. And I, I did research in Burkina Faso and in uh, Mali and in the northern part of Burkina Faso. I mean, that would be the type of basic uh, infrastructure that would be very supportive to small-scale local development in, in villages, for example. If you think of uh, larger-scale projects, well, we, we know that uh, in parts of Africa, there is still a large dependency on coal. Uh, think uh, of, of South Africa. So, I mean, that raises all sorts of questions uh, also. Uh, we, we know that there are plans in more central Africa to work with massive scale dams, for example. Well, we know that, that the history of large scale dam projects is a bit uh, tricky, uh, especially when it comes to winners and losers. So. I think finding solutions in Africa that are adapted uh, to the needs, the energy needs, that are completely in line with a zero carbon energy system for the future, and that are in line with, I would say, good governance principles, ownership of uh, people, really aiming to uh, improve social well-being of people rather than getting energy to, for example, massive resource extraction that then leaves the continent as quickly as possible. Can this be uh, beneficial for European companies? Yeah, of course, because uh, we would hope that with the Green Deal, that it would be also European knowledge that can be ben, you know, beneficial in Africa and, and of course also good for those European companies. But you would hope that it happens not in a, uh, in a perspective of uh, unbalanced power relationships and only with narrow economic interest. Africa, I think, is, is clearly the, the, the poorest continent on the planet still. Huh? But also the inequality within a number of African countries is not a fertile ground for long-term sustainability on this planet. It is not a fertile ground to implement the SDGs. So for me, it's, it's all about improving well-being and living conditions, quality of life where it is most needed. We need to see growth in basic infrastructure. We need to see growth in energy systems. We need to see growth in fundamental uh, healthcare, education, uh, building, uh, but within the constraints of the 21st century, which means low carbon, as much uh, circular economy as possible, and not further ruining the fragile ecosystems 
in, in which we are operating. So that would be the boundary conditions for this type of investments in Africa, whether they are done by African companies, European companies, or increasingly also Chinese players, as we, we well know. You mentioned knowledge, and it's also one of the key pillars of work of the European Environment Agency. In, in general, as you also said, knowledge and the science is much more advanced in Europe compared to, to Africa. Now, given these limitations, do you see green transition in Africa as, as realistic? Do you see potential for leapfrogging? Yeah, I mean, green transition is, is not only realistic, it, it is the only realistic way forward. If you look at, a, at where we are on the planet with climate change, biodiversity loss, the extremely negative impacts of how we deal with resources and the impacts on human health and well-being, I mean, they all come together in a rather strong way in Africa. So this sustainability transitions, green transition is the only way forward. You could say with a, with a platitude, I know, but the, the future economy and society will be green or it will not be, or at least not for very long. Is there room for much better knowledge cooperation in support of that type of transition? Yes. And I mean, we shouldn't uh, use the, the caricature that, that is sometimes still used. There is a lot of knowledge in Africa. Uh, there is a lot of collaboration going on. We, we work together in the international arena with, with top African scientists eh, in the International Resource Panel, in the IPPES, in the IPCC. So they are there, but knowledge in and of itself needs to fit into a knowledge infrastructure, a knowledge architecture that is then connected to decision making. You build it up with a certain continuity and not with a project here and a bit of uh, funding there. So embedding it in a better knowledge infrastructure and architecture and providing continuity could be a serious support uh, from, for example, European knowledge institutions to the, the African context, but, but not in a, in a sense of we know and let us tell you how to do it. That is, I mean, I, I hope that we're well past that sort of thinking. Uh, today, as we are speaking, there is no official African unified or common position on climate change yet. However, we can expect that the priorities will be, as it was in the past, adaptation and the need for access to clean or green energy. But so far, this Europe-Africa partnership on climate change has not been so effective. We haven't seen so much impact. And there remain to be clear divergences between both continents, also related to climate finance, for example. Uh, now, looking at it from a European perspective, do you see potential for an Africa Europe alliance or partnership? And if so, what would be the building blocks towards more success in effective climate action? I think the, the European African collaboration over the last decades has some success there in a number of uh, cases, but, but it needs to be further adjusted and adapted to the urgency that is needed around climate change. The uh, urgency in bringing the financial system in line with this, and I think there is quite a bit of work that needs to be done there. And I think it is essential that this type of relationship is brought also to global negotiations on climate change, on biodiversity and on resources. 
And I think uh, the tandem of uh, Europe and, and a number of African countries can really play a, a significant role in overcoming some of, of that debate that is often blocked or symbolic, or I would say not even in line with how the work functions today, because many relationships are based on global flows of capital, global flows of products and resources that that have strong, influential, and you could say wealthy players on all continents, and, and then those who are left behind. You mentioned climate finance, and that has actually been um, a point for divergence between Europe and Africa for many decades, with Africa having very strong needs for adaptation funding, and Europe not always having been able to meet those needs. Now, uh, looking at the new multi-annual financial framework, there is this 30% climate target, and they are committed to spending much more on adaptation. Does that look promising to you? Well, I, I think in general, yes, the, the commitment to uh, climate mainstreaming across the board, also in the budget, eh, with the commitments of the MFF, is not only there for DG Clima or DG Environment or uh, it is there across the board. So it, it will have a serious impact on and already has a serious impact on how we will be spending uh, development cooperation, funding and, and cooperation in science and, and all of those things. Is that necessary? Yes, absolutely. And I think it is a starting point. What is your main message for the international community on the road to COP26? And which outcome are you hoping for by the end of the COP? High ambitions, understanding that current policy efforts are not sufficient, speeding up and scaling up fundamental solutions, including in the financial system, working on well-being of citizens as a key goal of anything we do on climate and environment issues, and then uh, a transparent and good system of monitoring and reporting on that, that also uh, gives credibility to the efforts that happen across the board and also in Africa. Thanks a lot. I think there is still a lot of work uh, to be done in the coming months before the COP. I want to thank you very much uh, for making time to share your views with us. This has been very insightful, so many thanks. It's my pleasure.